In half an hour, it's over to the Shoal Creek course in Birmingham, Alabama, for the Channel 4's exclusive coverage of the third round of the American PGA Golf Championship. But now, on with the serious business of the evening, as Armageddon draws on a pace in the last episode of They Came From Somewhere Else. And I should warn you that parts of the final denouement are definitely not for the squeamish. Welcome to episode 38 of Round the Archives. <laughs> I ought to know. You should know, really. It's the 8th month. Yes, so happy August, everyone. Yes, happy August. We've got birthdays in August, we have, haven't we? Yeah. Just leave that there in yeah. case anybody wants to send us anything. <laughs> but anyway, what have we got? Well, you've already heard an advert, haven't you? You have, yes. Um, and given that they're not actually giving us any money... No. I'm not going to say it's by Kellogg's Corn Flakes... We do that thing that they used to do in mm-hmm. on sort of BBC and scrub out some of the letters okay. on the on the, yeah. on the packaging. So that wasn't really an advert for Elogs Orn Lakes, <laughs> okay. all right? It's a special right. lake you go to if you've got the Orn or something. I really? Know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you'll hear a number of these adverts. You will. Yes. Nick has managed to recover them from a yes. an off-air tape, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later when we, when we get closer yeah. to it. Yeah. In the meantime, don't mm-hmm. forget to look at our videos. Yes, we do lots. We do lots of videos every week. Mm-hmm. We do. About three, usually. Yes, usually about three. So, yeah, for people who are finding, like, a, a, mm-hmm. a month between podcasts too long. Mm-hmm. You mad uh, fools. <laughs> and want to see more of us. Very mad fools. Um, well, we're, we're doing Doctor Who, mm-hmm. uh, Are You Being Served, a yeah. bit of Blake Seven, yeah. and a few other things as yes. well. Yes, a few so random lo- things. Lots to see there. Mm-hmm. Warren will join us now he on will. the sofa. Yes. Because we're going to do a tribute to Freddie Jones, we aren't are. we? And yes. so Warren and us will look at... The Ghosts of Motley Hall. I'm just starting out in life. But my standards are already pretty high. That's why I'm so excited about standard life. One day I'll need an endowment mortgage for a home of my own. And savings too. How else could I afford my own transport? I might even want to retire to the seaside on a good pension. And it would be nice to know me and my loved ones are covered by Standard Life Assurance. Standard Life, for all of your life.
Good evening, Lisa. Good evening, Andrew. Good evening, Warren. Good evening, Lisa. Good evening, Andrew. Good evening, Warren. Good evening, Andrew. You've done that. <laughs> we have just seen yeah. the yeah. ghosts of Motley Hall. Yes. We have seen them. We have. Skeleton in the cupboard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From, he says, looking at his thing, uh, the 12th of February, 1978. And we're doing this in yes. honour of Freddie Jones. We are. Yes. Yes. The, the late lamented Freddie Jones. Now, this is uh, interesting because it's a two-parter. So it we're is. doing this article as a two-parter. Yes. So we do the first bit at the start of the podcast yes. and the second bit at the end once yes. we've watched part two. Part two. two. <laughs> but, Warren, as you're joining us on the sofa today... Hello. Um, memories of Ghosts of Motley Hall, yes, first of all? Yes, I have got some, yes. Yes? Did, <laughs> that's good. Because um, I don't really. Don't you at all? Not really. Wow. Not, not from original transmission, no. Re- I, from original transmission, loads of memories. I was captivated by the series. Really captivated. Uh, I don't know whether it's um, my inquiry mind, because I lived in a haunted house and I was brought up in a haunted house. Oh, right, yeah. And I just like the concept of the, the ghosts, and there was there was such a bumbling group of ghosts as well, weren't they? But this is five forty-five on a Sunday. Yeah. So I don't know whether what I'd have been doing at five forty-five on a Sunday. Playing with your loofah in the bath. Bath time was a bit later because I used to be okay. in for the um, in the top forty, and that was at, oh, in your transistor bit, radio with my, with my with my tranny. Yeah. Yes. So twelfth of February then. Title sequence. Mm-hmm. We, sh- we should mm. say about this because we, yes. although we have done, you know, Ghost of Motley Hall in episode four for our Christmas yes. special yes. when we did mm-hmm. the Christmas spirit. Yeah. The title sequence, you, you see the Victorian figures, don't you? And then they yes. just sort of fade, cross fade yeah. into into sort of modern the day. modern version of of the house. Mm. And all the statues seem to be weeping angels, don't mm-hmm. they? You all know, statues are weeping angels. Yeah, but they are they are sinister. They are sinister. Yeah. Because did yeah. you find this? the show scary at all Warren or not or did did you were they the sort of characters you enjoyed spending time with would you have liked to live with them I'd like to have lived with the characters I found the house horrible Uh, it's the outside it's funny you should say about the outside I found the outside very bleak and soulless yeah which um, when the first time I saw it was um, I thought oh these aren't going to be good ghosts because that's a horrible house (laughs) no I'd love to have their ghosts in my house but we get a bit of filming in this episode yeah. because mm-hmm. we, we, we start with Peter Salas on the croquet lawn. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to ask, anybody here ever play croquet? No. Yes. Ah, mm-hmm. I thought Warren might have done. Why do you think I might have? Well, you, you, Put me balls you, you, the hoops. you mix, mix with posh knobs, haven't you? Oh, yeah? this was some knobs in my time. <laughs> but where did you play croquet then? Uh, Cramble Manor. Oh, on the lawn. On the lawn. Mm. I've been on that lawn. Have you? Yeah, not playing croquet, though. Oh, what were you doing? Any other balls? Just just lurking. Ah, in the bushes, was it? We did have a little plastic croquet set, though, at, when, when we lived at Moncton. Okay. Um, really flimsy, so like if there was a gust of wind, your balls would be carried off in unexpected directions, but... I do remember sort of swi- swinging me mallet between me legs a few times. So yeah, but that's uh, yeah. Mm. Sight to behold. Anyway, Matt, Matt, the stable boy, is also on the lawn because, of course, he's the only one outside. allowed out. Yeah, because that's his place, isn't and, it? And he, he he throws a ball at at Gudgeon, who's played by Peter Salis. Who's P- Peter Salis? Then a car turns up um, with. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Ringham inside. The man who's always out of work, very rarely on television yeah. during the 60s and 70s. 
John Ringham <laughs> making the first of a number of appearances yes. this season. This yeah. season. This season. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. he, he turns up again as a German I like composer. John, John Ringham is so flexible in yes. everything that he does. Everything he it? does, it's different. Yes. He never does the same sort of part twice, really, unless he needs to, of course. Yes, yeah, so it'll twinkle as well but in his eyes. He, he goes in the house to have a look round because he's thinking of buying it. Because mm. at this point... Gudgeon now owns the house. Yes. He's been bequeathed it, hasn't he? He's well, right. Now he's been given it by a, a eccentric millionaire. millionaire. Yeah. 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 But if, you, if you were given a... Sorry. Yeah, no, if you on. were given a house like that, yeah. what would you do with it? Well, they do point out that um, although he owns it, he can't actually afford to live in it. No. So there is that thing about the upkeep of it, which is, of course, covered yeah. in the new series Ghost. Ghost, yes, which is a sort of modern retelling almost yeah, of, and of it, Motley. It's the thing yeah. of, although you've got the house... How do you keep how it? How do you keep it, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, if, if money was no object, I, I'd love to live in Motley Hall. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, you know, get rid of the ghost or anything like that. I'd be very... This, uh, what did you think pleased. of the sets of Motley? Well, the set is brilliant. You yeah, because you've got proper stairs yeah. that so they, you can walk from one level down to the ground they go floor places, level. Don't they onto yeah. sort of um, uh, minstrels' galleries? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the set design is brilliant because it is just one huge set, and you can shoot it from any angle. It's Absolutely. very, very yeah. well done. Yeah, I wonder what where it was filmed because the studio is huge. Hmm. Uh, then Freddie Jones appears, oh. doing his wonderful yeah. materialisation. Yeah, where he nearly falls over every <laughs> single time. It's like it's he? a huge effort for him. Yes. It's like really straining. He has a touch of constipation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, the white lady Fanny and Bodkin are having a sort of conflab because Sir George wants Gudgeon to live in it mm-hmm. and he's not happy about him selling it, it so he's being awkward yes and it doesn't help that the billiard table has been moved as yeah. well where that's where they have all their meetings yeah. isn't it yeah. don't you think his costume suits him yeah. Yeah. Jones, yes, yes. Yeah. It it's a sort of tea, doesn't it? edwardian because yeah. he dies in the early part of the 20th century i think i can't remember yeah. exactly because he's although he's and it, it as a general and he's fought in lots of wars very colonial yeah. Attitude, yes. isn't he? yeah um he, doesn't he actually die of a cold or something Oh, something okay, like that. Bodkin, yeah. Bodkin dies of a cold. Oh, Bodkin dies of a cold. Yeah, yeah. but he just. But yeah. so mutton chops, and everything suits yeah. him as a person, doesn't it? Yeah, and he's such a wonderful actor. Oh yes, yeah. there's a richness mm. to his voice in this mm. as well, isn't it? It's authoritarian uh, a voice, but it's such a richness, and it, it cuts through all the others, doesn't it? Mm. Well, we, we we chose the these two episodes because I think they're quite a good showcase for yeah. him, and, mm. and we'll see more of that as as we go on. And he's quite cheeky in the part as well, isn't he? Yeah, because he gets. To do a routine where he's blowing the match out yeah. and John Ringham's yes. lighting his pipe. Yes. And he, he sort of every time he leans over and blows it out. Smoking mm. in the children's programme. I know. Well, dreadful, isn't it? But on the third attempt he doesn't manage it, doesn't he? No. And it, all he does is sort of make himself cough. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's huffed so much, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. And then he's waving a placard about this is your home gudgeon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, they... Uh... It's make me wonder how he, he can pick up the marker pen and the cardboard and the piece of wood. But they can pick up stuff. But he's got to nail it into the yeah. piece of well, wood. Well, he must and... have made this beforehand, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not like he's just knocked it up, you know. Do you think they have a room full of things they keep? He's been he's been doing his sort of... Um, his making stuff in, in you know, in, in his spare time. Then he sort of also moves the bag and the coat of mm-hmm. uh, John Ringham and his hat and his hat, hat yes. and um, he sort of clears off Gojin sort of asks them to stop 
frightening people because mm-hmm. um, Gudgeon can see the white lady. He's yes. aware of the other ghost. He knows they're there, but... You'll have to remind me because it's a while since I saw the original. Mm. How come he can see the white lady? Some people can see some ghosts. It's never really explained as to as to why some people can and some people can't. Which is a natural susceptibility in yeah. in, in psychic things. You can you can have a room full of people and you could have two or three that can see or feel anything, and everybody else is totally oblivious C- to it. Because in the Christmas spirit, Gudgeon's great great grandfather or whatever he is can see more of them because mm. oh, right. there's a scene where, where they're all t- they're talking to him and it, it's it, it's a sort of family thing i think that but individual members can see individual sort of right mm-hmm. ones not necessarily because they say oh everybody can see old gory for example yeah well old gory makes a lot of noise doesn't yeah. they yeah but so george is still being difficult so he claims he's tolerant and open-minded i don't yes. know about that <laughs> not at all and he's doing it for the good of the community mm-hmm. but fanny's cross and he sort of draws his sword yeah and then bodkin finds the the, the croquet mallet yes and so george yeah, yeah. is scared of it we're not really? quite quite sure why at this point he recoils yeah. in fear doesn't yeah. he yeah fanny but, we should say is um uh, an 18th century ghost yes. isn't he yeah a sort of dandy but he, he wants to have a duel with sir george in yeah. the great hall and he hasn't there's only one sword but yeah. sir george has got a pair of pistols pistols at dawn yeah well yes. at five past five past at ten past five actually yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Gudgeon's on the phone, mm-hmm. and he's although um, John Ringham's been scared, mm-hmm. if he drops the price, he might still be able to make a By sale. Five thousand pounds. Five thousand oh. pounds. Yeah. So they're going to meet outside outside the house, mm-hmm. uh, anno- annoyingly at the same time the duel's going to yes. take place. Of oh, course. Cool. And that's the end of part one. So part two. Um, so Sir George um, <laughs> sort of comes down the stairs. That was Martha wheezing. So she George comes down the stairs and Bodkin's ask, acting as his second mm-hmm. and Matt's being second to Fanny. Mm-hmm. The white lady has to hold the pistols in the box. Yes, because they've got to select their pistol. Do you ever think anybody had to rely on their second? Uh, the second I think was, there are stories, yes. If, if the original doesn't turn up, isn't it? The, the second, second has, has to, to say to their place. Yeah. 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 But they're still all very polite, you know, yeah. saying after you when you yeah. want to pick your pistol yeah. in fact that's sir george has to help him with the pistols because, um, i don't think fanny quite knows how pistols work does he no. well yeah. they've been about roughly about yeah no, no there were pistols there were pistols and, and guns around in the civil war which is yeah, yeah. Right. sort of 17th century but you, you sort of you sort of more he's more, more used to using turpin. a sword yeah. he's dick turpin yeah. he's, he's dick turpin's sort of 16th yeah. 17th century isn't he perhaps yeah no because fanny's definitely after that he's sort of george the second i think okay. but yeah um so they're going to take eight paces and of course and turn around and fire mm-hmm. and of course fanny cocks it up completely by mm-hmm. being the wrong way round. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> blithering idiot shouts sir george yeah. yes fanny's no dick is he yeah <laughs> so peter silas and john ringham are now outside and they're just going to come in and they sort of re- redo the pacing. Mm-hmm. So George fires just as John Ringham comes in. Yeah. The, the bullet goes th- straight through Fanny's head yeah. and knocks John Ringham's hat off. And they both run away. And they run away. Not unsurprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is quite good because they've all forgotten their ghosts, haven't they? Yeah, they, they, there's all this tension about will he get shot. And there is actually tension as it builds up, isn't it? You're yeah. thinking... 
one of these is going to get killed. Uh, hold on a moment. <laughs> they can't get killed. What's going to happen? But yeah, I, I like the line as well about how, how getting shot would put a fella off buying the house. You know? <laughs> the billiard table's put back. And so George is like, is is on it. They wonder about whether he might listen to some other ghosts, maybe. Because I like the idea that there are more ghosts that you never see. Well, you can call them up, spirit them up, and they can sort of drop in the tea type. And I like that just from a storytelling point of view. It's endless stories, then, isn't it? It sort of engages your imagination. But they get the the croquet mallet out again. Well, Bodkin finds finds it again. And it's got the name Alexandra written on it, hasn't Mm -hmm. it? So Fanny mentions pell-mell which was a sort of precursor to mm-hmm. to croquet and george was apparently very good at it yeah but then they suddenly the family just suddenly stopped playing it yes around the, the time his sister alexandra, alexandra died, died. Yeah. now we were sort of working out the the dates weren't mm. we because yes. christmas spirit is set in 1848 so george is 10 at that point mm-hmm. and alexandra was seven Yes. Um, and apparently she could see Fanny as well. Yes. So I mm. like the fact that we're picking up on stuff that was mentioned, mm. you know, yeah. a long time ago in the yeah. series. Because it, it's... it's continuity. It, yeah, Richard Carpenter mm. is very good at sort of mentioning a detail. And so he then, must have a, a very good Bible he writes yeah, for this. It, yeah. It's all in his head. It's all sorted oh, out yeah. as, to, as to, you know, how it all works. And I think that's really good. Mm. But yeah, they they sort of take the croquet mallet downstairs, mm-hmm. and of course, all Gudgeon sees is the croquet mallet <laughs> floating down floating, the stairs, floating mm-hmm. down. And then Matt goes outside in the garden with it, and sort of Gudgeon runs off. Yeah. And then when Matt's outside, he rests it against the croquet hoop. Doesn't yeah. He? Yes. Then all of a sudden, a figure in black appears. Spectral appearance. Yeah. Who would think? You might at first think he's Queen, Queen Victoria, Victoria. Yes. but it's actually Joan Sanderson as Alexandra, mm. isn't Look, it? Looking for her sea view. Yeah. Now you said about her name. Sky. Yes. Mm. I just want yes. to say about your theory about where her name's chosen well, from. See, I can see where Richard Carpenter's picked it because yeah. he's tried to pick names. Because also in Christmas Spirit, their other siblings are named. Yeah. And you've got another another brother called Bertie, yeah. which is fine. That's after the. Prince yeah. of Wales and Frederick yeah. there weren't any Fredericks but that's a it's a good Victorian name but Alexandra is a bit because Alexandra becomes really popular in the sort of early 1860s when yeah. the Prince of Wales right. mentions Prince uh, mentions he does mention that he marries yeah. uh, Princess Alexandria of Denmark right and obviously the name Alexandria becomes quite popular but the only thing I can think of that they might have got it from is that Queen Victoria's First Christian name was Alexandrina, right? Which she decided that and was, he's just fudged and it he's a just bit. fudged yeah. it a bit, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, really, she should have been called Victoria because a lot of girls born around that time, Victoria's just come to the throne, yeah, would have been called Victoria. But maybe you thought that was too obvious. But she's wearing black. She is so wearing what, black. Yeah, so what does that imply? That implies she's a widow. Yeah. Because she's got a little, little yeah, and a widows, recent widow. And a think? recent, well, well no, they not necessarily. Years, well, they, they, Queen Victoria did, mm. and she set the precedent. So it would seem that his sister, and she, she comes across as quite religious as well. Because a couple yeah, of things she yeah. says before they go into the cliffhanger. So and there is a cliffhanger first. There is a cliffhanger. Yeah. It's a two-parter. So yeah, I would say she's quite a, a religious person. So maybe she. Um, but that would have been the further in those days, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, but so I would guess it's. The early 1890s that she died. As 
his sister, she's mm. younger than him. She is. But in sort of acting terms, Freddie oh, Jones... Oh, in, in actual... In real life, real Freddie world. Jones is born 1927. Yeah. But Joan Sanderson's born 1912. Yes. So it's just interesting that... Yes. But they do that a lot because it always bugged me. That, and I'm going to go completely off the subject. But in the um, BBC series Elizabeth R, yeah. you've got Glenda Jackson as Elizabeth I... You've got an actress called Vivian Pickles who plays yeah. Mary the First, who is obviously older than yeah. Glenda Jackson, yeah. and, and Mary Queen of Scots was about five years younger, <laughs> and it bugs me every time I watch it because it's she's a great actress, yeah. but it's the, the wrong, wrong part yeah. for her. Yeah. So people on television do not worry about ages of people, and it bugs me to this day. Yeah. It bugs me because I I remember again and going off of it. Watching the towering inferno and seeing somebody referred to as young man, and it was Robert Wagner. I'm going, he's not young, he's not he's old. old. But the person saying it was a, was an old lady, so to her, yeah. he was young. It's a perception. It's a perception. Yeah. But in the house, Sir George is playing with his fort. Yes. And Bodkin says, "You've got a visitor, somebody yeah. you know very well." He goes out to see who it is, and, and his face drops. Yeah. And it's, Lo and yeah. behold. Yeah. Murderer, assassin, she starts. So, so many implications yeah. are thrown yeah. at him, aren't they? And of suddenly it does, it does take quite a dark yes, turn. Yes, it does look yeah. dark. Is, is And Mr Carpenter's is... never afraid of doing that. Yeah. No, it's, 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 and none of it is sort of, you've caused this. You are a direct result of, death is a direct result of your actions, yeah. isn't mm. it? Because apparently he lost his temper playing croquet, hit the ball really hard and it bounced up and... The implication is it's hit her in the head, isn't yeah, it? In the head and, or in the face her. or yeah. something. But yes, um, though she looks remarkably good. I was going to say she's. Yes. she's <laughs> I mean, unless you you're don't not going to do a horrible makeup no. job on her, no. that would be pushing it too or far. Okay, okay, ball in her forehead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every but, time she's angry, it glows <laughs> like um, Peter Miles' yeah. red bean. Red bean. <laughs> but yeah, basically, she's going to stay, isn't yes. she? Yes. Until he admits. What he's done. Yeah, yeah, and she's not happy about the company in the no. in no. the house either. No, no referring it's all slightly backfiring yeah. on to the stable it? boy and the vulgar clown and the brazen woman who's uncorseted. Uncorseted, oh, and they've got her hair down. Yeah, yeah, because yes. to have your hair down yeah. in the Victorian era, because there's a famous picture of Queen of portrait of Queen Victoria with her hair down over yeah. her shoulders, and it was purely intended for Prince Albert yeah. because you would only see your wife in that position in yeah. the most intimate of circumstances. So it's very, you know, to have your hair down is quite a, mm. a risky sort of thing, a risky thing, thing yeah. unless you're a Naughty a white lady then. Naughty, yeah. shady lady. Yeah. So she says, they will rue the day they, they raised me. Mm. And that's the end of part one. Yeah, that's the cliffhanger. Yeah. So... Let's move on to part two then. Yeah. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you for, for part two at the end of the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Bye bye. And there'll be more motley musings later. <laughs> saying that a few, t a few times yeah. um, regarding the studios yes we should have said yeah it was filmed at Granada and of course Granada Studios I don't know how large they actually are mm -hmm. but you can fit the whole of the Rover's Return and the corner shop inside yeah. them I would point out the Rover's Return is a very small pub though I know you've got to be all very fr on friendly terms yeah. with everyone haven't yeah. you because you know back in the 60s when they had the snug it was 
It was snug. It, it was snug, yeah. It was snugger than it is now. <laughs> but next up, uh, Martin Holmes yes. is back. And yes. he's going to look at... The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. A most surprising number on the Aberdeen Telephone Exchange isn't in Aberdeen at all. It's 150 miles out in the North Sea. Marathon Oil's latest platform in the Brayfield. This American-based company relies on British Telecom for its communications links giving this remote steel island the sophisticated communications you'd normally find only on a mainland base. Data links. Worldwide communications. Telemetric measurements of oil flow. In the competitive world of international communications, British Telecom is the power behind the button. Here on two, we begin a new series. New to television, that is, because The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has been compulsive Radio 4 listening for many for some time now. Peter Jones recreates his radio role as the narrator, and Simon Jones can now be seen as the hero of the piece as we present The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> time ago, on a small blue-green, mostly harmless planet, a group of amoeba were swimming around in the cool blue ocean that had expanded to fill in most of the spaces it found itself snugly fitting into, and one of two of these amoeba got ideas above their station and decided to grow some legs and go and have a look at this ground thing that so many of them had been talking about. It had been lurking there at the edge of their watery universe, not doing all that much other than popping up above the waves and occasionally crumbling away at the edges, and whilst it didn't seem all that much of a threat, they decided that it probably needed looking into, and so some of the braver ones decided to hitch up their fins and stagger, gasping into the fetid air and go off exploring with a hearty because it was there sort of excuse as they were waved off with a hearty good riddance by the ones who considered themselves to be far too sensible for that sort of nonsense. Because it was hard and rocky and hurt when you tripped over a fin and fell onto it, a lot of the amoeba dashed back to the safety of the cool waters at the edge of the ground and decided to stick with the gills and the fins and the easier breathing and have a good old time of it becoming tasty enough to become lunch for some of the other amoeba who were really beginning to throw their weight around as the bigger fish. Meanwhile, their former companions, once they'd got used to a new way of breathing, split up into various factions, generally based around the number of legs it seemed most wise to develop, and most of them ended up becoming meals for each other. Some of them, unfortunately, also had the additional sideline of becoming clothing and tools, and if they happened to be cats, vital components for the one two-legged faction that developed a huge superiority complex and eventually decided that it knew best. This particular group, let's call them humans because that is what they were, decided that they quite liked their new lives on this ground thing, or land as they now called it, and because they liked it so much they began the long, arduous job of ruining it for both themselves and for their former pals now populating the oceans in a manner that was far too tasty to resist. At some point the land dwellers decided that life at the top of what they called the food chain allowed them enough spare time to get bored instead of getting on with the daily business of survival, and that to fill this time they needed 
made something they called entertainment, and so some of the cleverer ones gathered together things like wood and metal and bits of leftover cat and invented sound radio so that they could listen to the other humans whilst they got on with the important stuff like eating, having sex and working themselves to death to acquire the tokens necessary to buy those radios. Meanwhile, radio itself got made into weapons of mass destruction and the humans would gather around them just to hear what a bloody mess they were making of their world. And some of them found that this was good and some of them found that it was bad and some of them found that they could make a living out of laughing about what was good and what was bad about the whole thing. Meanwhile, amongst the clever humans, other grumpier minds worked upon different inventions involving moving pictures and after a long and brutal war, one bright spark decided that the pictures and the sounds might actually work rather well together like it did in the real world and so, after some messing about with things like film and mechanics and radio waves, television was born. Meanwhile, less than 100 years after radio was invented, one particularly highly evolved amoeboid, who had been called Douglas Adams by his immediate ancestors in the manner they'd agreed upon in their particular genetic survival strategy, wrote an entertainment involving robots and spaceships and pan-galactic cocktails, and his fellow humans enjoyed it so much that they allowed him to buy large quantities of rather neat ideas they called digital watches and Porsches and cardiovascular exercise machines, just so long as he didn't hang around too long and allow them to have too much fun. But this is not his story. That said, the story that he wrote was indeed his story, but not a story about him. It's best to make such things clear, as humans are prone to misinterpreting such things and involving themselves in wars to the death as a result. Meanwhile, a couple of years after the story involving robots and spaceships and pan-galactic cocktails had been heard, and several years after one particular movie involving robots and spaceships and no cocktails whatsoever had earned some humans a great many spending tokens, during one particularly long lunch involving less multidimensional but still highly impressive cocktails, some bright spark had the bright idea of making the radio programme of the story he wrote into a television programme of the story he wrote, and that's where the problems really began. But it's difficult to talk about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for that is the name given to the story we are talking about because the words written by that particular evolved human are so very familiar and so utterly brilliantly crafted and to try and pastiche Adams is to fail spectacularly in a manner that fails to grasp the honing and intelligence that made those words and ideas soar. Lines of dialogue that have become so familiar that slipping episode one into the shiny disc player, another gadget that seems to be a pretty neat idea, is like putting on a familiar and very cosy overcoat because in BBC terms this is not cheap television either as it sits there like a chortling black hole, quietly gobbling up the effects resources for other more familiar series whilst involving location film, specially filmed inserts, and studio time to tell a very wordy story that might not quite sit well along other sitcom fare of the era. For those more used to the whoops there go my trousers through the French windows or standing on a chair because eek there's a mouse type of television comedy. And then of course there are those state-of-the-art air quotes computer graphics, air quotes, that so impressed otherwise befuddled audiences at the time, despite being meticulously handcrafted using back projection of coloured gels on photographic film by skilled animators. For this is television pushing at brave, new, yet-to-be-discovered boundaries, and yet, as the words of the book are read out by the sublime Peter Jones in that Peter Jonesy voice of his, those very same words appear on screen at the same time, meaning that audiences so used to passively being poked by laugh tracks to know when to respond had actual words to read, just in case they weren't really listening as the dog chased the cat around the fish bowl and the fish fingers were placed on trays in front of them and great Aunt Mabel's trouble was discussed at length. 
A couple of generations later on, this would all become as natural as breathing, but for the moment, as the old world comes to an end, this was all shiny and new and possibly a little bit frightening. The narrative itself all begins at 6.30 on a Thursday morning, probably on an otherwise blank television screen. The captions tell us the time, at least, in small unfriendly letters, and matter-of-factly go on to explain that the destruction of Earth is due at 11.46, just slightly after the pubs open, luckily, and we are currently 5 hours, 16 minutes and 47, 46 45 minutes from the end of the world. Across a vaguely convincing view of Greenfield, a slightly unconvincing sun rises to greet the last dawn this planet shall ever see as Peter Jones calmly intones those now so familiar phrases and introduces us to Arthur Dent, first as a graphic display and then on film, and represented in this instance by the ape descendant called Simon Jones, as he starts this unfortunate day after discovering the as-yet-unseen ironic parallel that is the imminent demolition of his rather lovely little cottage. This leads to him heading outside, still dressed in his nightclothes and lying down in front of the demolition crew to stop them before having a meaningful discussion about the relative rustiness of people and bulldozers. Remember, dear listeners, pyjamas are indoor clothes and it is seldom acceptable to wear them al fresco, but we are prepared to forgive him just this once because, well, the world is about to end. And then we cut to the titles, in which a gold, space-suited figure, accompanied by the now legendary Journey of the Sorcerer theme tune by the Eagles, which is of course already synonymous with the show, speeds inside the three-dimensional lettering making up the series title, and we're suddenly back at the front of a bulldozer, looking into the face of Joe Melia, playing Mr. Prosser, the would-be cottage demolisher, and having that now classic discussion about display departments and leopards that will resonate with us when similar words are spoken by the Vogon captain later in the episode, a plot shift about which, in the narrative so far, our suspicion of which has been none at all. None at all is, of course, the line which introduces us to David Dixon as Ford Prefect, the manner in which is done using a yellowish, top-of-the-pop style video treatment of a scene we will see in full about a minute later, once the guide has filled in his backstory a little. In full, this staring-eyed first major recast from the radio series is a sight to behold, with his fancy blazed ensemble dressing in that oddly eccentric way that Doctor Who used to do, despite the author's intention of him being almost precisely the opposite sort of character. That said, he does the terribly noble thing here of saving Arthur life, if not the world entire, so perhaps his intention of being the anti-doctor is slightly exaggerated. No matter, before we know it, in a puff of fuzzy logic, Mr. Prosser is lying down in front of the bulldozer, and Arthur and Ford are off to the pub, pausing only for a sight gag involving a ridiculously expensive-looking film dinner party, and a brief discussion about the attitudes of two best-selling intergalactic publications on the subject of alcohol, only one of which requires another expensively staged film insert involving a green-painted Cleo Rokos. Oh yes, and this sequence also involves the first glimpse of one Zaphod Beeblebrox, albeit only in line graphic form. He will play no further part in the particular episode we are looking at, which is a shame, as there will probably be much to discuss about both his second head and the crew of his particularly running shoe-shaped mode of transport, if we weren't limiting ourselves to merely this opening segment. Sometimes adhering strictly to a particular format can cause unexpected problems, but hey, it's not as if the world's about to end, is it? There's plenty of time. In the pub, several beers are drunk, to lessen the impact of imminent matter transportation, and we catch a Hitchcockian glimpse of the writer himself sitting at the end of the bar in a not-at-all-saying-look-at-me white jacket. As the talk turns to Arsenal's chances in the cup final, nil, the huge amount of change from a fiver after buying six pints of beer, the Reader's Digest accepting clever quotes about lunchtime from certain types of contributor, and of course, the imminent end of the world. Meanwhile, via another expensive 
expensive-looking crane shot of the very Red Lion public house our heroes are currently drinking in, the aliens are coming. And via some expensive-looking stock footage of the kind of places that spent much of their time looking for alien spaceships, we discovered that it was rather a pity that they never spotted these ones coming as they arrive. Meanwhile, having overcome Ford's reasoning, Mr. Prosser has instructed his men to begin the demolition of Arthur's lovely cottage, or at least the prop wall surrounding its garden, which leads to Arthur dashing from the pub, leaving Ford to raid the bar for some peanuts and have a rather poignant final discussion with the bartender about the merits of paper bags as aids to enduring oblivion before the landlord calls last orders. And as Arthur rages and rants at the barbarians wrecking his home, his eyes are finally drawn to the yellow unbrick-like spaceship hanging in the air above his head, and in a wide range of practical wind effects, he is joined by Ford as the model spaceships appear above at least two different angles of St. Paul's Cathedral and drawing our eye because it does not escape. We smarty-pantsies are watching at home. The irony of the man with the end of the world is nigh placards finally being proved correct, whilst surrounded by the panic-stricken crowds exiting the tube. We cut to the impressive makeup on the body of Martin Benson of that Vogon captain I mentioned earlier, lurking in his triangular alien chair in a studio somewhere, calmly explaining the imminent end of the world. What do you mean you weren't paying all that much attention? I don't know, bloody pathetic listener, I've got no sympathy at all. Oh, I've been trying so hard not to use any quotes or to slip into obvious Adam's pastiche because the originals are so familiar and it all smacks of those people at the back of the coach all the way back from France endlessly performing Monty Python sketches badly and let's be honest, those originals are far too good for my feeble mimicry to emulate with any success. Just go and watch it for yourself or better still, track down that original radio series and have a listen or I don't know, buy the books. They're all superb, although the movie version does play a little too fast and loose with the source material for anyone bought up on the originals. Meanwhile... With a red glow and a slightly squibby BBC VFX explosion, the world ends in moments and the hopes and dreams of billions of life forms go up in smoke for the sake of a bypass. Forty years on and humanity is still no wiser. One of Douglas Adams' original ideas when he sat down to write the sitcom that eventually blossomed into Hitchhikers was to tell a different story about the world ending in every episode of a series called the ends of the earth and this version is of course the only one that made it through and what a glorious end to the earth this is but wait there are five and a bit more episodes you say funny that so despite the world ending in glorious smudger vision mere moments before we find arthur and ford in a cabin on a spaceship somewhere in a studio in bbc television center they have against all the odds survived huzzah this is not however the shiny sleek wooden floored and carpeted world of spaceships we would usually expect in a bbc science fiction series of about that time in the post alien post ridley scott era this is a bit of a dump a squalid fetid hole of a place which includes corridors very familiar to anyone who might have seen Alien, or perhaps even Warrior's Gate, and there is a lot of rubbish lying around amidst the scenery and Dentrassi puppets who claim to be trying to sleep. Arthur is finally introduced to The Book, a chunky little number in a slipcover that suddenly appears less than compact in the age of the very iPhone it sort of predicted, and whilst he and us learn all about Vogon constructor fleets, Vogon grandmothers and the dietary habits of the ravenous bug blatter beast of Trahl in another excellent graphic sequence, it becomes more apparent that Arthur is still in his pyjamas and dressing gown and with the loss of Burton the Tailors and all of the other outlets is likely to remain so. A BBC studio wall opens up to reveal a canteenish looking food dispenser full of blue bread and green goo, which looks terrible and apparently is, despite Ford's reassurances that it would be delicious. Then, in a slightly wordy bit of exposition that may reveal more of the radio roots of the source material than future filmmakers might prefer, we learn of Ford's background as doors are opened, wide shots are widened, and several vital-seeming natty little sci-fi devices that probably seem like good ideas at the time. Stun guns! Telecom systems! 
telepathic helmet, hypno-rays, are dismissed in favour of a towel and a fishing here from the sort of practical studio tank built simply for one sight gag that possibly still gives Sophie Aldred nightmares. Anyway, happily for the timing of our plot points, the Vogon captain repeats his entire announcement for those who didn't yet have the ability to translate it, and as we ponder upon quite how good his poetry could possibly be, our heroes have a lie down as the ship makes the jump into hyperspace and we are left to ponder upon relative sentience or otherwise of glasses of water and gin and tonics and how cruel humans used to be to such things. The journey is happily covered by one of the greatest pieces of writing combined with animation in the series as the story behind that little fish, a babel fish, gets told in a convoluted god-bothering explanation that might have baffled the post-top-of-the-pops crowd, many of whom might never once have tuned into Radio 4 in their lives. And in a puff of logic and a towel-shifting light jump, we are in the vicinity of Bernard's star, where Ford tells Arthur the sad fate of his homeworld and tries to comfort him with showing him the entry it had in the book, which probably seemed a harmless enough idea at the time, but leads to a bit of a post-traumatic row between this most undynamic of duos. However, before any of that can be further discussed, an actual Vogon arrives and our heroes are captured and start reflecting again upon the merits of Vogon poetry as a guitar starts being plucked and the end credits start to roll. And as we reach the end of episode one, the reason I started thinking about writing this piece, one of those iconic TV robots which so caught our imaginations in a chat we had several months ago now, hasn't even made an appearance. I don't know. You're writing an entire article to get to the point of it and you barely got a mention. Is that all the thanks I get? Do you think that's a satisfying reason to talk about a television series? Because I don't. And so, on reflection, is Hitchhikers too ambitious a project for the abilities television had at the time? Possibly. But this version, directed by Alan J.W. Bell in 1981, manages to do it astonishingly well. And as the only other version of the books to actually get produced in a visual medium in Douglas Adams' lifetime was a stage show, this, as they say, was very much the proverbial it for several decades. And despite one or two moments where its ambition exceeds its ability to achieve those ambitions in later episodes, it does a pretty good job of converting some of those wilder imaginings into decent visual form. Okay, the odd mechanical head looks dodgy, and the strings might be visible on the occasional flying bubble from time to time, but crikey, those guys made a jolly decent fist of it. Personally, I only met Douglas Adams once. Well, I say met, but I went along to one of his book signings for a very peculiar evening in Manchester. The person I went with was not a fan, and disappeared off into the allegedly more intellectual book stacks of Waterstones while I engaged uneasily with two diminutive disciples of the cult of Douglas wearing matching green cagoules and hairstyles. Later on, whilst reading from the book he was promoting that evening, the ironically titled Last Chance to See, the great man himself almost fell off the unnecessarily high stool the shop had provided for him to sit upon, having had, we suspected, more than a sniff of the rather cheeky little white wine the shop had considerately provided its customers with for the occasion. This led to an awkward moment when a young lad sitting cross-legged at his feet, as I remember it, but he probably wasn't, there may have been chairs, told Douglas it was just like a moment in one of his books when and went off on a rabbling description of a thing. The author himself looked almost as totally bewildered as the rest of us, and as we thought the moment was passing, the rest of the audience shuffled self-consciously as we all slipped into a terribly British sense of mortification and awkwardness at the boy proceeded to look up the very moment he was referring to in one of the Hitchhiker books. Anyway, I bought Last Chance to 
Ecstasy and got it signed alongside a couple of other books, I seem to recall, and of course never saw the man himself ever again. Then, on one particularly sad weekend morning back in spring 2001, the world found out that we'd lost him, and that really did feel like the end of the world. Five more episodes of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were broadcast in that series, but no more, and the author went on to find huge success with the rest of his increasingly misnamed trilogy of books, alongside several other projects whilst desperately trying to get the movie version made, one which finally popped into existence a mere seven years after Douglas himself left life, the universe, and everything. Audio versions of the books, and even one book by another author, have all turned up to fill the void, but this first version still feels like Hitchhikers when it was still new and raw, and all rather wonderful, and whilst the radio series might still be the Rosetta Stone of Hitchhikers for most, this television version is probably the most widely viewed and better known version amongst we lesser evolved amoeboids still thankfully inhabiting the planet Earth. Many thanks to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. Yet another superb article. My tiny headmaster at Your middle tiny school headmaster. was called Mr. Prosser. How small was he? Uh, minute. Okay. Could, could you see him? <laughs> he wasn't imaginary. He was no, just. What I mean is, was he big enough to see? Like... <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, over there, I've got my school dictionary that right. he gave to me in 1978. Okay. And I noticed that it doesn't have the word podcast in it, so it's not a very useful dictionary. Oh, no, they didn't have podcasts in 1978. Yeah. They? But, yeah, middle school would have been where I first read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, yeah. So there we go. Mm-hmm. Anyway, shall we get all musical and funky now? Let's do that. Yes. yes. As Paul Chandler of, the, the, Shy Shy Life, of yeah. the Shy Life podcast yes. takes a look at... Animal Quackers. It's Gretchen from the Midlands. Hi there. So tell us about this new account you've been putting together. Ah, Griffin Savers. Well, it's a new savings account, especially for the under-17s. £10 will open it, and then we'll give you everything you need to keep track of your money. What kind of things, Griffin? Oh, home bank file, statements, as well as extra interest, and this free sports bag, math set, dictionary, project folder, sandwiches. Do we get these as well, Griffin? Uh, no, sorry. Actually, that's my lunch. <laughs> Griffin Sailor's account, new from the listening bank. from the Shy Life podcast. Hello, I'm back again, and uh, I've been asked 
Um, I've been invited by Andrew and Lisa to talk to you about Animal Quackers. Now, this is a series from the 70s, a kids series, that, in a way, I've only really just started to appreciate. Um, Let me give you the facts from Wikipedia. Um, Animal Quackers was a popular children's television series produced by Yorkshire Television and broadcast on Britain's ITV in the 1970s. The Animal Quackers were a four-piece pop band consisting of Rory, a lion, Twang, a monkey, Bongo, a dog, and Boots, a tiger. The characters were played by... (laughs) This bit's not true. The characters apparently were played by actors. No, 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 no. Um, Anyway, actors in costumes... The show was similar in many ways to the successful US series Banana Splits. The music was a mixture of well-known pop songs and original songs, most of which, including the theme song, were written by Roy Apps and the producer Peter Eden. The jingle from the series was Rory, Rory, tell us a story. Rory, Rory, tell it like it is. Now, there were three seasons. The first season had 13 editions, and it ran from the 25th of September 75 to the 18th of December 75, the second series also had 13 episodes and that ran from the 30th of September 76 to the 23rd of December 76. The third and final series ran from the 10th of November 1977. Um, 10th of November being my birthday, so... Um, not my birth year. Um, until the 2nd of February 1978. So, uh, yeah, it ran from 75 to 78. But it would appear that there were two episodes missing. The rest of the series... Um, all the other episodes exist and were released quite recently on a DVD I am of the sort of age range that I I might have been a bit young for the first season but by perhaps the third season I would have been of right age to be uh, watching Animal Quackers but I don't have any definite memories it's got a bit of a reputation of being a bit a bit scary but I don't I find them kind of fascinating rather than scary. Um, So really my opinion of Animal Quackers comes from very recent viewings. Um, I can't remember if I heard somebody talking about Animal Quackers on Round the Archives or whether it was just on Twitter. But uh, I decided to buy the DVD. Um, My own personal favourite of the Animal Quackers is Boots, the... um, uh, the tiger, who looks to me like a sort of Diamond Dogs era David Bowie. Um, or maybe... Slight, well, it's definitely in a period where David Bowie wears an eye patch. At least there's a photo shoot where he's... To, anyway, I can't help but think... It's sort of around 74, I think. Um, so it's around the time probably they would have been thinking about making this series. So Boots is definitely my favourite. The other reason that uh, I sort of... Uh, became interested in the show it's because I've been going through a bit of a Beatles phase I mean I've, I've been a fan of the Beatles since I was about 10 or something in the early 80s and, and I've been sort of dabbling again having not listened to them for a while and funnily enough each episode of Animal Quackers uh, tends to have three songs they basically start off with a song then Rory starts to tell a story he breaks so that they can um, uh, do another song then he does some more of the story and then they finish with a song and in the episodes I've seen so far from season one they, they cover Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds Yellow Submarine Drive My Car uh, so it's kind of weird I believe in the later seasons there are less cover versions of songs from the time um, and more sort of traditional songs. But in, in the first season, there's an early episode where they cover Tiger Feet uh, by Mud. To me, it's more along the lines of the Wombles or something like that. 
and I'm a big fan of uh, the Womble songs, so I, I'm so I'm sort of watching Animal Crackers from that point of view, and, and just sort of enjoying the theatricalness, the the show as a whole, really. Now each episode is only about twelve minutes, so so what I'm going to do is review very briefly an episode from each of the seasons, and just sort of sort of say um, what the differences are, or how it progresses, how it changes. Um, and then I'm going to finish with, well, let's just say something very interesting has come into my hot little paws quite recently. It is uh, a book published back in '77, all about the animal quackers. But uh, but we'll get to that when we get to it. So let me start. I have the DVD in. I'm not going to do a commentary, but um, I am going to select some episodes. I was actually kind of surprised, uh, in a way that uh, I suppose these series they have less interest to adult cult TV fans, maybe. Um, it was actually quite difficult to find out which episodes uh, didn't exist, but I was reliably informed that uh, yeah, two episodes no longer exist from the second season. Now, I'm not going to choose episodes that I especially love uh, or have pre-watched. I'm just going to select um, episodes randomly from the, the menu page. I'm going to start with the first season episode, We've got zoo, dancing, travel, teddy bears, stars, birds, boys' names, colours, sun and sweets. Now, which one would you like? Well, I'm going to select sweets. The thing that's particularly notable about season one, other than the poor quality of the title sequence, not so much the actual animation, the, um, well, it hasn't aged very well. It's very grainy and of poor quality, but the actual episodes themselves are really good quality. The first song in Sweets is Sugar Sugar by the Archies, although, of course, the song is sung by the Animal Quackers. Then goes into a, a story that Rory tells. And the thing that I particularly like is that Rory, he always wears these massive sunglasses with, well, they're pink shades, I suppose. He really is quite a cool cat, but he's still not, he's still not as cool as Boots, as far as I'm concerned. The story in this episode all about the Candyman, not the Candyman from the scary movies though, so uh, that would be quite scary. There are two further songs, uh, most familiar to me was Sweets for My Sweet by The Searchers, uh, again, as sung by the Animal Quackers. There's quite a lot going on if you watch these episodes. Um, Boots is uh, the singer of Sweets for My Sweet, and he's using like a lollipop as like a, a microphone, and as, as he's sort of moving around, Rory's trying to grab the, the lollipop off him and misses, well... Actually, the, the way this one ends is, is slightly sinister because uh, um, it's revealed as the song goes on that Boots has... Well, he only has three lollipops, but um, the other three sort of gang up on him, take the three lollipops, and uh, Boots is left there with nothing. not quite sure what message this is supposed to uh, um, give, but... Uh, there we go. Um, you know, so Boots didn't share his lollipops, but, well, I don't think he should have them forcibly removed. Um, I don't know. Oh, the other thing I was going to say about the animation in the first series is that when the stories are being told by Rory, you see pictures um, which the camera sort of zooms in on and, and moves around on, but it's, it's not actually animation. It is very simple, but I'm reliably informed that this changes in the second season. I think we'll move on to the second season now. Um, so we have entertainment, summer, winter, animals, music, more travel, more sweets, numbers and work. 
Um, some of those will be season one episodes and some of them will be season two. I think I'm going to choose music. That would appear to be a season two episode. Now the title sequence has changed in season two. The animation's a bit more ambitious and I believe the animated characters that you see in the title sequence is the same animation you see when Rory's telling the story. Um, now the first song in this episode, music, is um, a, <laughs> it's a sort of Animal Crackers version of Old MacDonald Had a Farm. said that at this point the animal crackers do look very much of their time they do look like a lot of the bands you might have seen on top of the pops around 75 76 boots definitely has well he has some pretty impressive boots that do look like they would have come from a glam rock band although a sign of the times glam was on its way out by then i'm not sure that animal crackers are quite ready to move on goodness knows what would have happened if uh, if they'd have gone on um to be fair by season two there's there's no obvious influence of punk on the way and uh, yeah i i i'm not sure that i've seen any disco going on but uh, who knows maybe by season three episodes alas we were never to see what animal crackers would have looked like in the new romantic era As I was led to believe, there was proper animation in the stories in season two. And this episode has a character called Elkhound John. I'm not sure if he's a cat, but um, anyway, I'm led to believe that uh, there are quite a lot of puns like this during um, some of the later stories. But it has to be said that the animation is quite basic. And there is still the use of sort of zooming in and out on stills or original drawings of animal crackers but uh, it's, it's definitely an improvement on the season one storytelling there's a rather bizarre song in this episode called the zoogaloo um yes it does sound like it might be a reject song from a goodies episode to be honest the final song in this episode is all about the piano um now as far as i'm aware the piano song is probably an original composition but uh, i may be wrong but uh it was quite a fun episode, especially with Elkham John. But I, I do think I prefer the season one covers of Beatles songs slightly more. But goodness, that must have been quite expensive with the uh, with clearance and, <laughs> and playing copyright fees and things. Well, I'm on the second disc now, but uh, I'm going to scroll towards the end of it to find a season three episode. But on this disc, we have episodes called Sea, Rain, Cowboys, Help, School sunshine trees and flowers more birds do it yourself tigers indians snow summertime dogs monkeys lions elephants and mice and more entertainment well because boots is my favorite we're going to take a look at the episode called tigers Now, season three um, of Animal Crackers looks very similar at first uh, look to season two. The title sequence is the same. Rory seems slightly different. Uh, the mask for Rory uh, seems a bit more solid. At times, in the f- particularly in the first season, it, it sort of 
of flapped around. And, um, um, now, in this episode, Tigers, they are they're singing Tiger Feet, which I'm sure they sung in the first season as well. I might be wrong, but, uh, but I guess it would have been a couple of seasons before, so maybe I'm wrong. Boots just looks as cool as ever, to be honest. I must say, I'm digging uh, Twang's hat. It's a nice collection of badges and stickers and all sorts of things. Interesting to note, at least for me, that uh, during the reading of the story, Rory's holding a book, and he always holds a storybook when he reads it. But, funnily enough, the book that he is holding in his hand is the same book that I will be telling you about in, well, just a minute or two. Uncle was very strict and old-fashioned, and he couldn't stand pop music. Although this particular story isn't from that book. None of the stories in the books are... are really long enough uh, to have been read on the show. My name is Boots the Tiger and I am a big bad cat. Now what do you think of that? I'm very pleased that Boots has his own songs. I'm not sure if there are episodes of whether all the others get their own songs. Might be wrong. Pretty sure Bongo's ears look different uh, in this season. He just looks, I don't know, a little bit extra. It has to be said that uh, the animation on the title sequence, even in these later seasons, is basically the same footage, and then when they leave, it's just reversed. It was like that in season one, and it's like that in season two and three. Um, I, I, did, I did note that uh, the illustrations, when Rory tells the story in season three, has kind of gone back to uh, uh, focusing on drawings, and not really animating it anymore, but the, the drawings are pretty good quality. And I am chuffed to see the book in evidence, the book... I'm about to tell you about now. Before I finish my article on animal quackers, I uh, I have a little postscript. Now, because I'd enjoyed animal quackers, despite the fact that, despite the fact I only vaguely remember it, well, that's if I even do. <laughs> it might just be wishful thinking. But anyway, I decided that owning the DVD wasn't wasn't enough. I needed something else. I wanted, I wanted some other merchandise. Now, in an ideal world, I'd better buy a T-shirt with boots on or something, or maybe a mug or or life-size hologram of of the whole of uh, Animal Quackers. Obviously, you wouldn't buy them in one go. You you'd save up. You'd buy one at a time, and then they could sort of perform to you in your living room. But uh, anyway, alas. None of these things actually exist, not at the moment, not that I know of anyway. But I went on Amazon. I mean, a lot of people go on eBay. I've never really used eBay a great deal. But I went on Amazon and I I had a look, because I know that they sometimes sell old things, second-hand things. And I had a look to see what else there was to buy related to animal quackers. And I found something. I found, well, it's not really an annual. It's, It's not sort of linked to a particular year, although I think it was published in 1977, probably around the time of the last season. Anyway... It wasn't very expensive, only two or three pounds, I think. Um, and it arrived in good condition. It is the Animal Quackers Popland Storybook. 
I want to tell you about it quickly. Andrew Lisa particularly asked me to do this. So uh, it's written and illustrated by Terry Eden. And um, on the cover, there is, uh, there is a cartoon of uh, all of the Animal Quackers team. Now, I have flicked through this. All I can tell you is that uh, this book originally belonged to Mark. Mark with a C. I won't give you his address. I doubt he's still there, but it, that would seem to uh, overstep the uh, the mark slightly. Mark did live in Newton Abbott, and Mark was only four at the time. Um, I suspect that Mark had this book read to him, unless he was pretty advanced in his reading. Anyway, the interesting thing on the first page, where there is this sort of um, area for you to write your name and address, there is a section for the photo. Thankfully, there is no photo of four-year-old Mark. I think that might be a little bit scary. Anyway, I'm going off the point slightly. What I find interesting, there was some really, really nice artwork in this book. On this sort of um, label at the front of the book, there there is a picture of the animal quackers, like a sort of imaginary animal quackers plaque or something. It has the four animal quackers, and it says King of Popland, and in the the centre with the four animal quackers above him is, is a face that I can only take to be Elvis, which is ironic, considering that the book was published in 1977. I wonder, I wonder, was it written before or after Elvis's passing? Now, I can, what can I tell you? Uh, well, the, the book is dedicated to Mark, not Mark with a C, uh, a Mark with a K, Mark, Lewis and Rachel, published in 77. It was published by Redwood International and Bookmark Limited, Royal Mills, Esher, Surrey, which is near to where I live. But uh, it was also printed, as well as in Esher, in Trowbridge. Um, Mr. Andrew. Uh, text and illustrations by AKM Limited. Now, it says that the Animal Quackers theme song was written by um, P. Eden. The book's written by T. Eden. I'm not sure. The two related? One would think that maybe they were. The television series Animal Quackers is a Yorkshire Television Limited production. Um, photographs of Animal Quackers by courtesy of Yorkshire Television. And those photos were taken by Alan Harbour. Now, uh, I doubt this club still exists, but you can always write in. If you would like to join the Animal Quackers Club, send 50p, only 50p, to Animal Quackers Club, care of Carmel Music, Forecliff Avenue, Westcliff-on-Sea, Essex. I wouldn't, I wouldn't... Um, them. The stamp would cost you more than 50p these days. Now, I won't loiter for long. One of my favourite pictures, though, is in the contents page. It's like a poster. There's all sorts of... Um, I think there's, there's characters from the book. It's sort of like a... I guess it's like a, an imaginary um, poster, like a for, for an imaginary gig. And there's a picture of the animal quackers, Twang, Rory, Boots, Bongo. But then there are lots of other characters on the poster. Um, the Elvis character, uh, a bear dressed in sort of 50s, um, Teddy Boy style. What I can only presume to be Elton John, or at least a little cartoon character that looks very much like him, uh, with the big glasses and the, sorry Elton, the lack of hair. It's okay, you got your hair back later on. And there's a dog dressed as a cowboy, and, and an octopus, and a star, and, and well, it's all pretty marvellous. Uh, I took a picture of this poster and put it on my Instagram account. I liked it so much. Um, so then we have uh, we have the Animal Crackers theme song. Do you believe in old King Cole? Do you believe in rock and roll? Then we have 
the lyrics to the Animal Crackers theme song. Now, when I used to do my poetry gigs, I would often read song lyrics as poems. Well, I'll have a go. The Animal Crackers theme song. Do you believe in Old King Cole? Do you believe in rock and roll? Then into the starship and off we go. Here we come to Popland. Here we come to Popland. Here we come to Popland. Animal Crackers, Animal Crackers, Bongo, Rory, Twang and Boots. One, two, three and away we go. With a sha-la-la and a woe-woe-woe. Woe-woe-woe. Shaking all over from head to toe. See you back in Popland. See you back in Popland. See you back in Popland. Animal Crackers. Animal Quackers. Bongo, Rory, Twang and Boots. My favourite boots, my favourite. Um, yes. It's quite a moving piece, I think you will agree. Now, the majority of this book is made up of, like, little stories. There are all kinds of uh, little stories in here. I would dearly like to read you one of these stories, but I, I don't think we've got time, but I will tell you uh, some of the uh, story titles and, and who knows maybe you'll send me a direct message and I'll, and I'll do a talking book version of this book who knows maybe stranger things have happened the stories are work along to a song twang and the ugly tree drunk trunk call rory and the gentle giant bongo out west spectacular spectacles the carrot caper underwater electrics jungle rock the sad clown tom tom's big beat boots's patch and the lonely frog I haven't started reading any of these stories myself, but I have flicked through the drawings. And um, although there are lots of nice little drawings, you know, on every page, it's the full page drawings that are nicest, even in some cases, um, sort of double page. They look a bit like the Bay City Rollers. They've got sort of tartan, but they're, they're cats. Now, what are they called? Stray Alley Strollers, I think. So I say, they look like they're wearing a mixture of tartan and sort of almost American football style sort of clothes. They're all cats, of course, and they're performing on the back of a tortoise. Yes, it's quite amazing. There's a rather odd two-headed cactus involved in one of the stories, and a pair of spectacles. Another of my favourite illustrations is of some goings-on underwater with a, an octopus and some rather and some rather nice fish that kind of look like bright pink um, guitars um, there's obviously some sort of band going on the, the um, octopus is playing a keyboard using all his tentacles uh, I think this is the story involving eels and there is Boots wearing um, a rust proof underwater hat this is quite a fine hat it's like the sort of thing that um, somebody exploring underwater would wear but it, but it's like a top hat as well it's like a top hat um underwater helmet it's very stylish which is exactly what i would uh, expect from boots there's a picture on the other page of the sea rock review now on the back of this there are uh, a number of little jokes um apparently it's the top 10 probably under the sea she's my gill by salmon kipper You've got Soul by King Neptune and the Mermaids. The Fin Crowd. The Fin Crowd. By the Sharks. Shaking All Over by the Jellyfish. Pearl by the Oysters. Slipping and Sliding by the Eels. There's a Place for Us by the Fillets. Yes, the place place is spelt um, P-L-A-I-C-E. Uh, fin Lizzie. Fin Lizzie by the Scales. Splish Splash by the Breakers. There's a very nice picture of an elephant looking at some music and a rather a very sad looking clown it looks like 
they've been um, exploded. And sure enough, there is quite a lonely-looking frog. One fact I'll give you, which uh, is mentioned in uh, a story called Boots's Patch, it, it says, Boots is a very nice tiger, but between you and I, he has one fault. He's rather vain. Well, you know, when you look like Boots, who wouldn't be vain? Hey, this book's been out of copyright for a very long time, I would imagine. So um, how about I finish with one of the stories? I've been dying to do it. I will. You can always skip this bit. It'll only take about a minute. The story's only three pages. It's called The Carrot Caper. This makes me Rory, by the way. <laughs> I'm telling a story. <laughs> I'm telling you how it is. The Carrot Caper. Paulie, Paulie, tell us a story. Paulie, Paulie, tell it like it is. Twang always speaks to the flowers. He thinks it makes them feel wanted, and wanted flowers are happy flowers. Happy flowers become big, bright flowers. Now, Mr Rabbit was having problems with his carrots. Not growing too well, he sighed to Twang. So Twang told him how he spoke to the flowers to help them grow, and it might work with carrots. A week later, when Twang had returned, Mr Rabbit was measuring the growth of his carrots. He thought they should have grown faster than they had, especially as he had read them short stories every night. Well, they have grown a little, reasoned Twang. That proves I'm right. Mr Rabbit did not look convinced. If they like being spoken to, they must also enjoy music, thought Twang. And that's how the animal quackers got to play in Mr Rabbit's vegetable patch. What happened to the carrots? They must have enjoyed the music, because next morning Mr Rabbit was knocking on the animal quackers' door, asking them to come again with their music. Even Twang was surprised at the growth of the carrots. This time they used the earphones, placing them on the largest carrot. The band played, and the carrot doubled in size before their eyes. In fact, it grew to such a size that Mr Rabbit could foresee some cooking problems. Then the carrot shot from the ground like a rocket. It passed over the trees and up into the blue sky. In time, it was out of sight, never to be seen again. Mr Rabbit felt that the carrots were big enough after all. So, as well as speaking to flowers, Twang speaks to vegetables now. And that carrot, could it have been the first carrot in outer space? Well, actually, no, because there's a carrot in an episode of Lost in Space. Uh, I guess it could be the first carrot to have um, journeyed up into space from Earth. But um, no, there was definitely a carrot monster in a season three episode of Lost in Space. Anyway, I suppose in a way it's quite nice to do an article like this because it's not a series that's particularly well documented. And certainly I don't know how many adults have sat down and watched every single episode and then sort of made comments. And, you know, there were loads of episodes I haven't watched yet. And I find it quite interesting to sort of study them and kind of piece together bits and pieces that, uh, you know, aren't widely out there. A lot of TV shows, you know everything about them. With Doctor Who, you know everything about it. It's, Or at least it's there for you to discover. But um, a show like this, which isn't really well known, um, and a lot of shows that I've been buying recently, sometimes for good reasons, pe people haven't written much about them. But uh, I think Animal Quackers definitely deserves um, a little bit of a, a little bit of a watch. Maybe not all in one go, but the odd episode here and there. Oh yes, remember I said that I was pretty certain that I'd seen them do Tiger Feet before. Well, guess what I found in episode one, season one. But it's okay. It's Boots's song. Boots can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. Um, thank you for listening out there. Thank you, Andrew and Lisa, for letting me talk about animal crackers. 
and I hope you enjoyed the story and I hope the copyright people aren't after me or, or a giant carrot for that matter boots will protect me Tara goodbye now bye bye goodbye Thank you very much to Paul. Yes, thank you, Paul. A good example of uh, fitting a, an article to a person, I yes, think. Yes, yes, he, he really, really likes animal quackers. And you do too, I don't you? I quite like it, yeah. I, I bought it on a whim in the last network sale. And I didn't think I was going to enjoy it that much because I thought, oh, this is a bit weird. But the more you watch it, the more you sort of get in tune with it. And I really like Boots as well. So. Well, we saw the one with themed around cowboys. Yes. And they did uh, the trailer, The Lonesome Pine. Yeah, and it was amazingly accurate. Oh, they did all the dance moves yeah. and everything. Having so. seen a bit of Laurel and Hardy recently. Yeah. yeah. But we did do a poll. Mm-hmm. And we asked on Twitter, who is the best animal quacker? Yes. And I said, please retweet for publicity porpoises. Mm-hmm. Yes. Maybe there's such a thing as publicity porpoises. Mm -hmm. And with the grand total of 14 votes, it was the most unconvincing poll we've ever done. As Rory and Twang scored 29% and Mm -hmm. Bongo and Boots scored 21%. Mm -hmm. So that's fairly pointless. Bongo took a long while to get any votes, though, didn't he? Did he have a late surge? He had a late surge. Okay. But now... Mm -hmm. um, Nick and Joe Bunsell return. Yes. And they're going to have a look at... They came from somewhere else. The best things in life cost a little more, but they're worth it. Like panache by Lothric. Charm and lots of style. Panache is classical, and when you wear it, panache is a fragrance with flair. Everybody notices. Panache by Lothric. One of the good things in life. Well, now, folks, we come to uh, a little, uh, even more forgotten gem uh, from Channel 4. What's Channel 4? Produced by TVS. Produced by TVS, uh, now sort of uh, tied up with Disney. Uh, Now completely lost in contractual heaven. Yes. Sadly. We do not know who owns the rights. Yeah, and uh, we know that even some of the cast are looking for a copy. Mm. Uh, We're actually currently looking uh, looking at a copy now. Uh, my friend Graham Beef, I'm going to, uh, who's a uh, big sort of Fanderson artist, um, taped it off the telly um, in 1984 originally, and um, I just so happened to be a his friend and b just live around the corner. So um, <coughs> this was shown. This is a sci-fi send-up. It's got every single kind of sci-fi cliche, particularly mm. pulp sci-fi sort of. Yeah. 
Um, the, uh, a pan nine from outer spacey kind of. Well, it's sort of pop sci-fi invades eighty suburban England. Yes, it's it's kind of got the, the same sense, sensibility and... of uh, yeah. that, and it's got the team. Uh, what they what were they called? The comedy team that put this together was it? Oh, Gets a cliffhanger. Yeah, they did this at the. Um, they did a version of this at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yes, I seem to remember. And which is where they got the gig to do this from, yeah. and they, they did it as a six-part series. Yeah, which is quite a gig to land, really, isn't yeah, it? Let's yeah, face well, it. Well, this was back in this what eighty-four. Yes, nineteen eighty-four, and it's they came from somewhere else. Yeah, um, and it's I, I and we we've always had a fondness for it. We yeah. uh, it was uh, very silly. Again, uh, Joe and I were at school when it was on, yeah. and it was during the. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, we're watching it whilst it's we're reviewing it, but. Um, it's, uh, it was in the summer holidays of 1984, yeah. and I stumbled across it quite by accident. I think I got the sort of fourth episode in or something. I, my first memory of it was uh, Rebecca Stevens, who yeah. is a, 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 quite a well-known comedy name, being swallowed by a sofa. And yeah. it's it's full of lovely daft moments like this. And it's just a lovely, entertaining role. I, I was fortunate to catch from the first episode, because my parents who liked science fiction, I... They tuned this and it was just wonderfully daft. And my yeah. older brother was, uh, yeah, was just at that time all the older siblings had gone. It was me, my older brother, my parents, and um, my elder brother loved science fiction. We just watched this and it was just stupid. It's and, just delightful, and, and, and we also used to like that goofy British comedy yeah. as well. It, it came together. I think it was on Saturday nights, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it took a bit getting used to. But yeah, you got oh, it did. But when humor. you got it, you, you got it. Yeah, and you got it's just just some lovely surreal ideas. Yeah, um, it's it's you, stupid. You've got a, a sort of a set of characters that eventually get swallowed up in this sci-fi scenario, and that and the last episode goes completely sci-fi. Yeah. It really, you know, goes for broke. It, and, it's just, um, a, yeah, it's a wonderful. It's like a, an eighties suburban community gets invaded by Don Sutherland. That's right, and the, and uh, Robin, ooh, who uh, wrote Mr. Bean, Robin um, Driscoll, yeah, uh, is actually playing a character who is. Uh, who look, look not only, well, he looks like Donald Sutherland, but uh, <laughs> and, uh, Body Snatchers? Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Invasion of the Body yeah, Snatchers, yeah, yes, 78, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's but, the only yeah. one, because I, I was trying to search the other day, uh, that's the only, yeah, that's the only one that fits in with this. Is, I did discover that indeed Donald Sutherland played a character called Homer Simpson yeah. in yeah. Uh, adaption of uh, Day of the Locust. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, because, yeah, I've read about Day of the Locust, I've never seen it. Yeah. He's the section of Preston County. Yeah, but it all turns out to be a big alien scenario in the last episode. Mm. When um, you put on the right glasses, you turn to an American. Yes, I know. It's get, everybody eventually Don't turns worry, into an Zach American. Zach is back. Yes. Yeah, this sort the of beaming down underwear. It's sort of, oh yes, which um, oh stop it now. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> We're well, we, we, we'll leave it at the door there for the, for the sake of the modern-minded kind of... Um, it was the 80s. <laughs> ...hormone-shy viewers. Um, but, yes, it was... I, you must remember I was I was 15 and you were, what, 12, nearly yeah, 13. 12 were brought up in Pirelli calendars. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, also, I think we, 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 we were both well, yeah, noticed we, girls at the age, you well, know, yeah, at yeah. junior school age. Yeah. 
Um, but no, this is this this is the lo- just a lovely mm. send up of that sort of thing with some what marvelous moments. Yeah, observe, observe, and you open the. Uh, Build up of mm. sci-fi cliches and drama, and you've got the rug pulled from underneath mm. it. You know, it's the sort of thing we'd have loved to have done with the Magnetic. Oh yes, and we nearly did with mm. Goodbye Crown of Glory, mm. Uh, mm. which wasn't Magnetic, but it was after. after no, 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 but yeah, we would have uh, we would have had some fun with it. I think. Well, I mean, the revamp was quite <laughs> a gory story. Gory story. I mean, that was it. Let's talk a bit, a bit about the cast. We've got um, Pete McCarthy, who's Pete sadly McCarthy dead now. Uh, yeah, sadly dead. Deadly. Um, he did, did a travel program. Bar. Yeah. Well, a whole program and a series, wasn't it? Yes, and I remember thinking at the time, that, oh, it's that guy from that came yeah. from somewhere else. And um, so multi-talented fellow playing yeah. a sort of nerdy one. It's a very tragic death. He's a very talented man. Yeah. Very interesting. He couldn't have been very old. No, he wasn't, no. Um, oh, he's actually the breakout star from this yeah. in many ways because the um, well, have we heard of the others? Well, Rebecca Stevens uh, has appeared in this and that. But, yeah, um, but she was very much into the comedy scene of you know, sort of like sketch shows hmm. at the time. But it, it's just Pete uh, McCarthy made that breakout from this. The only person that you can actually have anything that you can say he had a major career outside of this. He had uh, quite Robin a Driscoll. Career. Was very involved in the Bean. I I, I don't. I've never liked Bean, um, but um, <laughs> but um, yeah. So I, know I uh, the guy who plays Colin, who's he, the sort of lab technician mm. one. I have to say, Colin, although he doesn't look that much, you, uh, Mr. Trowbridge, he, he's always reminded me a bit of you because you, you work in labs and and you kind of got the sort of hasn't got your beard, beard of course, but. Mm. He wasn't. You were saying he was on a, a, a website a few years ago, and oh, uh, God, yes. he was saying, um, "I'd like to see it again because I, I, I was in it." Yeah. I was in it. Yes. <laughs> well, that is the problem because the the copyright over this is 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 something lost. Yeah. So it was TVS. They got bought out by was it MTM? No, oh. Tyler Moore. Yeah. And then um, I think it, the rights become a little bit more. I mean, you could probably restage it on the um, entirely on the. Um, oh, sadly, no adverts on this one. <laughs> oh, it's pity. But um, yeah, sadly, it's um, uh, the stage version. You could probably restage because that's probably quite independent. Yeah. But the the TV version, no, I think it's very obscure. Who actually owns the rights to this? It's an awful shame because you know you've got. I think a... Disney might actually be the the main hold of this now. But it's complicated. Yes, which is a pity. But the thing is, with with this, I mean, um, it's all on film, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, well. it's, it's, it's beautifully silly. Yeah, I think it's it's, it's well overdue for a DVD release and or very Blu-ray nicely release. made. Um, I would love to get the cast back together and yeah. actually do a well, proper from poor old Pete McCarthy. Well, obviously he can't, but. Yeah. Um, but it would be nice to get everyone's. Oh, Pete McCarthy must have an interview on this at some point. Yeah, well, I'd like to think so. Yes, I mean, and we'd love to. F- it's an enormous, great, big bundle of fun, isn't it? You know, it's, and and you mm. you can't get you can't but resist getting tight, sort of lost in the in the sort of whole silly world. 
Well, it's the beautiful thing. It's taking the piss out of the science fiction series and films, but in a way that if you like that sort of thing, you accept the piss take. Yes. You quite enjoy it. I actually think... I have a theory about sci-fi in the 80s. You, you kind of had a, a period where it was um, building up sci-fi to be more and more and more serious, and then suddenly in the 80s you had this, you had Hitchhiker, mm. uh, you had Kinvig. Science fiction was very much... Uh, inverting and, and sort yeah. of sending itself up a bit. A well, Red Dwarf as well. <coughs> Even though actually Red Dwarf as it was did some very decent sci-fi ideas. Yeah. But yeah, you, yeah, it's true because you had things like in the seventies build up of even it's more esoteric with uh, Children of the Stones. Yeah. And even um, John Mills's Quatermass. Quatermass. Yeah. Again about Stone Circle seventy-eight going into this sort of area. And it was very, quite um, high brown. Yeah, um, aimed high. And then, like uh, I was saying, serious, serious, serious. And you had, you suddenly had the eighties. You had um, even sort of minor sci-fi things that were, were almost don't rank as sci-fi, like Metal Mickey. It was, it was boogie very boogie. Much, yeah, it was very much send-up sci-fi. Yeah, and the other problem you had was that you got things like Artemis eighty-one, which yeah. might as well have been a send-up. Yeah. Over. <laughs> So it looks like, yeah, oh, good lord, that takes me back. Very reliable. But, um, yeah, you've got things like um, Artem Plenty One, which I've probably been watching, and I think, interesting as it is, it could almost think it's parodying itself. Yeah. It's awful. And this came out the same year as K9 Company, which is. <laughs> well, actually, even the same Christmas period. Yeah. And K9 Company is probably more laudable. Yeah. Because at least it's honest science fiction. Ultimately, one is just too obscure for something good. Yeah. I like some of the ideas they had in it, but um, that you're right. That's the problem. It, it, it did divulgence off to somewhere that it didn't enjoyable though it is. It, it did sort of yeah. um, sci-fi was something to have the proverbial wee wee taken out of it. Yeah, but the eighties of weirdness. Um, if you want it, in <laughs> done big. It was either Doctor Who, which mm. was. Trying to do amazing things on um, a very low budget. Oh, hardly any money. <laughs> doing a wonderful job. Yeah. In places. Star Cops, which actually looks more pressing now than it did at the time. And you've got American soldiers who are yeah. really kind of over the top. They even play American <laughs> tunes in the background. It's a, it's a broad... For a piss take, it's a broad piss take, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's very knowledgeable. <laughs> yeah, and what they're taking the piss out of. That's why I like it's a it's a loving piss take, mm. which is what we all want. Yeah. It's not you, what, it doesn't. Sn- In the future, everyone will speak with an American <laughs> That's Trump's world. Yeah. We'll also all be orange. Somewhere else. else. <laughs> I love the sort of very <laughs> sultry, almost Bond uh, yeah. tune at the. written for my cliffhanger. <laughs> It's just very, as I say, it caught my imagination. Yeah, um, yeah. And you've got the old, wonderful old 
troopers like Hilda Braid yeah. coming along and playing small parts. I, I do remember you liking the, the, the suitcase that turns you to an American. Yeah, that's that's a lovely idea. <laughs> it's kind of every conspiracy <laughs> film you've ever seen. That, uh, But the thing is, yeah, when we, we, we talk about this, but we were talking about it at the time. You know, we yeah. came back from... Summer break and 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 well, uh, those are the days. Really, oh a, no, more than that. We yeah. were meeting up, weren't we? In yeah. the summer, uh, it's more than that. I mean, these are the days when, yeah, you, if you didn't watch it, then that was it. You, 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 you didn't watch you, it. In fact, oh, um, executive producer Anna Holmes. Now, Anna Holmes, if it's the same Anna Holmes, I presume it is. Uh, well, of course, no. brought um, Grain Shield to life, and also did the the changes. Oh, and of course, which explains why everything's done on film. So, oh, that's yeah. me saying that broadly. <laughs> but now on with the serious business of the evening, as Armageddon draws on a pace in the last episode of They Came from Somewhere Else. Oh. I should warn you that parts of the final denouement are definitely not for the squeamish. And indeed, um, they they actually do. Pushed, I mean, especially it's post watershed before there was a watershed and it's Channel 4. And they, the, the gore fest, which kind of again reflects the, the horror side. Yes, I did say you weren't a complicated machine. <laughs> and you do, you do actually get disemboweling in the middle. But don't worry, he's a robot. I'm going to tell you that because just in case they don't release it, and you'll probably have forgotten this review. Yeah, right? quite. By the time they do release it. Metalford is a very real. Artificial 20th century environment. Beyond so I really like this idea that. And actually, probably this is a precursor to the Matrix. Mm. We give you this, this this world that is imperfect, so you won't want to escape from it. Yeah. Here of the intruder, Danzig. To destroy it, they're using a quasi religious beef feature Armageddon scenario written by Danzig himself, controlled by a Central computer. <laughs> yeah, this is what you like from, you know, metafictional ideas. Yeah. The Black is Invaded, it's written this, yeah. It's written That's what I always way. liked as an idea, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I've invaded my own fantasy. Yeah. But surely it's a writer must appreciate it's something you'd like. Oh, yeah. yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's like being invaded by Navens on amusements, you know, and it's all of my fault. <laughs> It's a yeah, it's a lovely inverted idea, you know. The thing is, if I if I had to write a metaphysical, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd sort of write a metaphysical physical eighties and <laughs> track down all those people that I I meant to get their telephone number. <laughs> I do it on steroids. I'll have to wait till I'm steroids. <laughs> you know, because considering the sort of trashy sci-fi. Mm. Uh, film is it's, it's aping it's a really good production values on this that's good but yeah well mainly because they're not actually having a laugh at those sort of things yeah. they're, they're, they're kind of sort of it's, it's a loving send up yeah. I love the way they they, they use the car they, 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 they go dun, dun, up yeah, and down up and down up and down with the uh, steering wheel they're obviously not driving it yeah Something you won't see until Timmy Dalton's performance in uh, The Living Daylights. Yeah. He's <laughs> driving an estimate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, hello, it's a fiesta. Um, also, I mean, you, you, in order to ape horror, you, you've actually got um, 
exploding heads and the like. Yeah, know, well, this is, actually goes for broke, really. It goes for yes, all sort of David Cronenberg scanners and lives yes. living dead. But on the dead overload. Well, yeah, it does. It does go to the whole eighties gore thing. Yeah, but, absolutely. I mean, it's totally eighties. Just a few um, months later, they did, or around about the time this was shown, they were recording Vengeance on Varos. Yeah, yeah, with, with, well, with Doctor Who. But it's, it's the other thing, this is when, um, it's when Channel 4 used to do some very interesting series. Yeah. You got this, um... You tuned into Channel 4 in those days, and you really didn't know what you were going to get, you know. It's yeah, a really you, kind of, unlike now, that repeat, 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 repeat. Yeah. It, it, this, this was something genuinely new. Well, yeah, you get, as I say, you could get Matthew Kelly in the early evening with uh, relative strangers. Yeah. Even so, that was still quite an yeah. interesting situation of comedy. It's yeah. better written than most you get these days. But you thought you'd get 830 chance in a million. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which I mean, was completely out of the park. Yeah. It was, it was completely random. And, and, of course, gave us a very few, um, a future star in... Um, well, two future stars. Two fu- yeah. That's true, yeah. In Brenda Blethyn and... I've not actually seen Brenda Blethyn in anything else. Isn't it strange? You've got uh, practically the most experienced, uh, heavily exposed actress uh, in the whole... actor in the whole thing is Hilda Braid, and she she plays very minor characters in it. (laughs) I sentence you to be transported to the prison satellite Middleford. You can still get those glass heads in TV Max. Also, I like the fact that when they transport people... It's just a dummy. <laughs> it's just lovely random moments of silliness as well, yeah. like teaching his baby tap dancing. Even though it's a dummy. Even though it's a very obvious dummy. But there, it's supposed to be a very obvious dummy. Yeah. It's, 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 it works very nicely. It's the beaming down underwear that yeah. he's got. <laughs> but you've got the big reveal in the last episode, and uh, it's, it's just wonderfully over the top. You know, it's it sort of desperately doesn't want to disappoint. No, and, but you know, in a tongue and cheek way. And probably at our ages, this is how we really wanted life to turn out to be a bit more interesting. Absolutely, yeah. We just want. I mean, you know, I had my when I was a kid. I only had I had my own. I didn't have an imaginary friend. I had an imaginary planet, which I ruled over benevolently. Indeed, yes. Um, you did want to. D- d- disappear off into yeah. into fantasy. But we found when we were doing the books, we, with yeah. sci-fi ideas, they come round again. And yeah. with the, the, we we looking at some of our ideas in the eighties, we kind of were oh right, that was done in New Who, you yeah. know. Kind of. And there's a sort of even though it's completely you know it is it, it is urine extraction from top to tail. Um, there's some really actually quite nice ideas in this, but they're all all you get the feeling. Presumably, they all wrote it together, mm. and. Uh, you get the feeling that um, there was, they were all nerds. Mm. You know, they they all they all loved their sci. They knew their sci-fi. Mm. They knew their horror. They knew their. After this is the scene I really love. This whole big speech about he's going to do go the other side. Yeah, I'll catch the bus. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Wonderfully stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that idea, the, yeah. This whole yeah. esoteric idea, oh, catch the bus. Might say that might have informed some of my writing. Yeah, exactly. Also, the, the 
because it's on, entirely on film, it's there is re- real locations. I mm. just wonder where it was all filmed. Probably Stevenage. Simon Pegg. Now, I would love to know whether he saw they came from somewhere else, because mm. it's basically a forerunner to Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. You've got zombies. You've got a lot of sci- uh, sci-fi and horror cliches, and um, it's yeah, um, uh, it, it's it's very much a proto Peg. Yeah. Production. Although, you know, although I've had a sketch from a brother. He he always says. Person I'm most likely to go to a pint with. Yeah. So far, it's Mark Gatiss because they have a shared interest in. Um... Oh, I thought you meant your brother would the person you most like to have a pint. No, with. no, no. My brother has this thing. He'd like to have a pint with Mark Gatiss because they have a shared interest in gothic horror. Yeah. Uh, and the other one was uh, some some pegs um, mate from uh, Nick Frost. Oh, Nick Frost, yes. Yeah, he'd love to go for a pipe with Nick Frost if he could be interesting. So, what about Simon Pig? No, too intense. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'd love to know whether he saw this and what he mm, thought of yeah, it. Yeah, I'm uh, good. Yeah, because I mean, this this could almost you know, if you showed this to a modern audience, they they think ah, peg. Mm. I never thought of that before until tonight. Which mm. is in which is you know when you think how phenomenally successful Simon Pegg's. Mm. Productions have been and how high profile. Well, you got big things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes. Now, Avengers Assemble. Yeah. I'm sorry, but where's Steed? <laughs> Quite. However, the whole idea that you got the Chitari invading. Yeah. The thing is, the comic books they're originally based on is by a Scottish writer called Mark Miller. Yeah. Now he admits the Chitari entirely invented because he <laughs> read. Um, who's that nutty bloke who used to do the sports reports on South the Day? <laughs> he, he started his own cult. Um, oh, uh, David Icke. No. David Icke, Icke yes, yeah. David Icke. Yes, he entirely based it on David Icke. Yeah. I mean, to Mark Miller, said it amuses me now to see yeah. the big screen, this whole alien race is entirely based <laughs> on David Icke. Yeah. Based on David Icke's crazy conspiracy theories. Yeah. I'd say the cinema is where the denouement happens and the showdown, and it's really well shot. And uh, you know, it's uh, they've obviously taken over some grotty old cinema yeah. for a, for a, for an afternoon, but it's actually really really well done. Uh, Rebecca Stevens is now in her beaming down underpants. beaming down underpants. Yes. This helped him for so many. Anyone who's years. known me longer than six months, add in comment here. Yeah, so he didn't shut up about it for a long time. I can't think why. <laughs> I'm staying here with Joe. Listen, Joe. Oh, I'm staying here with Professor. I love you, Marsha. I love you, Joe. Oh, I love you, Professor. I just love that. And that's the line we quoted liberally, wasn't it? Cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Deserve a lot of praise for mm. absolutely going for broke with this. Mm. Who wouldn't be Robin Driscoll at this point? <laughs> I just like it's just so wonderfully ridiculous. Now, if you tried to write this, you'd, you'd have been afraid, wouldn't you? Mm. The people said, no, this. Nick, you're, you're writing bollocks. Although, not for the first time in my life, I mean, and this this lot got away of it. The thing is, a month after this was transmitted, I wrote. A, compl- uh, a totally bonkers political story for the Magnet Editor called The Zero Anomaly. Mm. And uh, w- rereading it now, I think this is absolutely insane. And yet, looking at this, I think no wonder it was insane because <laughs> I just, I, I was completely, um, you know, I, there was insane things around at the time, you know, and I, I was. Uh, 
with, a, with a, a, a president that turned out to be a robot and Robin Driscoll in full over the top Donald Sutherland mode. Fall invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do remember it being a bit of a shock. I mean, it's the whole gore thing. I've, I've, I've never quite seen it anywhere. Ever. Bizarre <laughs> Filipino horror movie that once <laughs> called Super Beast. <laughs> Uh, which only went one better because it actually had um, an actual autopsy in its footage, just, which was horrendous. Okay, uh, uh, yeah, Rebecca yeah. Stevenson has dematerialised. I'm, I'm, I can breathe again now. <laughs> <laughs> He's now capable of speech. I'm now capable Joined of up speech. talking. Yes. It's pitch perfect as a piss take. Oh, yeah. So, so it's a seven, loving piss Seven take. episodes of sheer bliss, and I, I, I wish they would knock their heads together in terms of the rights before any of the other cast to leave us. Yeah. Because I mean, we've lost Pete McCarthy already. Yeah, and, which is a pity. Um, oh, just a lovely show. It's never been shown again. Well, it's never been released on video, never, never been released on DVD. Yeah. And I what don't understand awful, why. What an awful shame, you know. Life's too short for a non-release of... <laughs> 3 glasses and a computer above a box of the toilet. Yes. Obviously watching um, Dimensions in Time. Oh, there we go. Full transit again. <laughs> I must have texted you today. Do you want to come around and watch a load of transit vans on telly? <laughs> and um, Colin is finally Americanized. He's now yeah. Zach. He's now Zach. Zach's back. Don't worry, Oblinsky. Zach's back in town. <laughs> they must have had a, an absolute riot making this. Yeah. Um, Obviously... You, you, diminishing returns I mm. don't know. would you have got the same freshness oh no yes I don't think you would would you no no um, but it, I, the whole idea if they're given a bit more budget to hold the yeah. second series that would have been quite uh, it'd been interesting instead they need Morning Sarge yes <laughs> which again has not got a DVD release no a doubled release or being no underpants yeah yeah indeed. if they release a blu-ray Nick would buy a blu-ray I would buy a blu-ray yes <laughs> I've got a blu-ray <laughs> and I couldn't begin to you can't begin to imagine how blue it would be Thank you very much nick and joe yes thank you boys and now well this is just about it really it is yes um we'll return to motley hall in a, we will, in a yes. few seconds mm-hmm. but we'll say again thank you mm-hmm. for listening and thank you for everybody who took part yes thank you to nick for providing the tape of yeah. his adverts mm-hmm. which i might attempt to put on our youtube channel okay yeah but don't shoot me if it gets taken off for copyright okay. reasons 
Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, episode 39 will be along in September. It will. With a theme. It's a very um, interesting theme. Yes, yes. indeed. Mm-hmm. So, yes, let's go back to Motley Hall and yes. then we'll go into the end credits. Okay. So, see you all again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. For pictures with the right colours in the right places, get your films processed where you see this sign. The Kodak Monitoring Service. It makes your pictures better. Or part one of part two. Yes. Hello, part welcome two back. This is the second part of the Ghosts of Motley Hall article. Yes, indeed. Yes. Right. So we start off with Bodkin playing a mournful tune. Yes, on the, flu- yes. on the flutey recordery thing. <laughs> on the recorder. It's not a flute. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of fl- floating across the, mm. the house. And the white lady, Fanny and Matt, are expecting Sir George to for, play cards. For bridge. Yeah. Because yeah, they always play bridge on the Thursday. Yeah. Because <laughs> when does she in always the do... The, when does she When does she do the stairs as well? That's a Wednesday, Tuesday or is Wednesday, it? isn't oh, it? Okay. I can't remember. Uh, but they've not seen much of him. No, since Ale- Alexandria came. Turned up. Yes, and sort of taken control of him. She has, she? yes. So instead they're going to have to play Snap, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Which is about all they can... Do. Downstairs, Alexandra is reading to Sir George, or at yes. least reading out loud to herself. Yes, at Sir George. Yeah. At, Sir George at, yes. at him rather than at to him. him. Yes. yes. But she sort of complains about his gambling, mm-hmm. which oh, is. It's becoming a disease. An addiction and yes. a disease. Yes. And she wants to know where it takes place. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It's in the bell tower. And she. she transports herself to the bell tower and she's very controlled isn't yeah. she and yeah. elegant she, she just sort of clasps her hands and, yes. in, a, in a very and you just said pompous didn't yes, you yes. this will happen way yeah whereas the others seem to have severe constipation whenever <laughs> they move around the house i mean this episode in particular is spectacular for mm. some of sir george's facial materialization oh, yes. he does a brilliant one later on yes. oh, the tomorrow people could have learned a lot from sir george yes. <laughs> But Alexandra goes up to the bell tower mm-hmm. and uh, takes the card saying they're, in, the, they're the, inven- the invention of the devil. Yes. And she doesn't like ladies who gamble in their nightgowns. Oh. <laughs> and the white lady gets quite cross at that. Because yeah. I don't think it's not a nightgown. It's it's Because it's got a hood on the back. Because well, she also calls it a shift as well yes. later on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Healthy she's called at one point, isn't mm. she? Yeah. But um, Bodkin is sort of playing some other things. Like he, mm-hmm. Was it Tickler in the Buttery? He's going to play Tickler in the Buttery. <laughs> oh, I yes. love that. Yes. But his, his, his whistle thing is conf- confiscated. Yes. What, what could, oh, he's, yes, he's got a wonderful way with the turn of phrase. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we've said this before, but to have so many good people mm. in as, as regulars in this show is... It's, it's is, a roll call of talent, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Because I, I, I said before we sort of started on this, how, how sort of... Sheila Stiefel is not really generally recognised for how good yeah. she is. No, because we not. we've just shown Warren Popsy Wopsy from the good yes. old days. Mm-hmm. She was about for that was the week there was, wasn't yeah. she? But I, I, I think your first sight of Popsy Wopsy has been an experience, yeah. isn't it? I, I'm, I'm just um, religious experience is the <laughs> word I would say. Yeah. I but, went, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yes, um, uh, Alexandra th- thinks that Matt's got ideas above his, spe- his station. And must be sent back to the stables. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And no yeah. stable lads in the building. Mm. And and yeah, the white ladies are a huzzy mm. who slummocks in her shift. <laughs> I don't think she actually that's because the word she doesn't slummocks. wear. That's because she doesn't wear. Um, oh, carry on. Corsets. Corsets. She yeah. slummocks. Yeah. But Sir George is of the opinion that all ghosts are equal, basically. Yeah. Yes. Although he might boss them about. Yes. He and says we're all in the same he's, same boat. He's, Crypt. He's much more forgiving. <laughs> yeah. um, but sort of Matt sort of uh, manages to get Sir George away. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically he, he swears he will never behave badly again and will even yeah. help mm-hmm. to sell the house. To yeah. sell the house. Mm. But how can they get rid of Alexandra? Mm-hmm. Um, but what is it? It's like persuading a shark not to bite. Mm-hmm. You know, could they bribe her, give her a present, or find mm. out whether she's got a weakness of some yes, sort? Yes, a chink in her armour, as they put it. Yes, indeed. I and mean, we should say they lure Alexandra away by getting Bolkin to sing a sort of slightly raucous song. Bawdy, oh yes, song. Yes, yes. song. Yes. And he sort of he dematerialises just as she, she, gets she comes to near him. Anyway, Fanny is sort of told to go go off and discover a weakness and mm-hmm. matt goes to help because he's fannying around fanny around yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe not she's reading a book on household management yeah, i think mrs beaton then yeah yeah mm-hmm. and fanny actually takes his wig off yeah this yeah. is rare i, I commented yeah. that i'd never seen him with his wig off yeah because mm. he's saying it's warm for the time of year she, she says it, it's midsummer it doesn't look like midsummer no, in the film no, it doesn't. It's it's rained out there yeah, yeah. Yeah, she she says that they've let themselves go since they've become ghosts, mm-hmm. and she's got to reorganise and reform them, reform yeah. them, and she complains about how she was denied her triumph, yes, and would have beaten him in the in the, cro- the croquet cro- game, yes, and they reckon that's that's the way to get to her, yes. Oops. Well, whilst all this is going on, Willoughby Goddard turns up as Mister H R Fortescue. He does. He's mm. he's an eccentric because he's he's got a hat and a moustache, <laughs> a little beard, and a waistcoat, and a waistcoat, yeah. But that's this, how you tell. This is <laughs> this is Mr. Reader's boss. Of yes, course. yes, yes. Um, he's so Jason. In, he's interested in buying the house, mm-hmm. um, and he wants to look out over it this afternoon. Yes. So, Matt goes to check. I like this. Matt goes to check on the croquet hoops. Yes, I don't know quite <laughs> what's going to go wrong with them. Well, I think he's worried that Gudgeon's taken them away. All oh, right. Uh. But if they replay the match, then he sort of explains it to Fanny. Yeah. He doesn't quite get doesn't quite of grasp it, does yeah. it does he no fanny he's he's a very nice pet nice chap but he's not the brightest he's is very he? fey yes. yeah. he gets confused by things yeah. Yeah. basically the he, simplest of things yes <laughs> he gets all confused and uh, um because if she wins yeah she'll leave yes, yes. but he thinks it's the other way around yes. well it's obvious if you think about yeah. it but that's the end of part one cliffhanger mm. anyway so Fanny goes off to explain how how, she, <laughs> how she's got to replay replay the game with George, mm-hmm. and I did think it's a bit sort of Laurel and Hardy. He's like the Stan Laurel of like getting things. Yeah. The, one, yes. the one we saw about um, when he has the idea um, about selling the fish, yeah. and Stan says the says it once, and but mm. then when asked to explain it, gets it, it gets it wrong. Yeah. We, we could we could. Sell the fish and buy it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But <laughs> basically, it. if she stays, she'll win. Yes. Is, is yes. this the best he can do? <laughs> they still got the slight problem of getting Sir George outside. No, yeah, because he, he can't, can't actually outside, go outside. No. no, none of them can go outside apart from Matt at this stage. That might change in a few episodes of time. Yeah. Really? Yes. 
But yeah. but we have had an episode previous where he went outside when he lost his temper. Yes. So he's got to do that again. And what was it you like the line about she's dying to play? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you, you get a very nice sort of a dematerialization effect with, mm-hmm. with, with Sir George, you know, pulling... You know, Gurning, isn't he? Yeah, he's really doing he looks some, as some he nice, do nice mischief. Mm. But Alexandra is doing a sampler. Yes. Um, what's a sampler? It's um, it's set on a, up on a ring, and it's it's, or it could be a needle point, but yeah, it's it's a worthy thing, and it's it's um, have not want not waste right? not want waste not want not sorry, yeah. um, it was the same. So yeah, <laughs> and they used to frame them and put them on the wall. That's right. But yeah, it's a lovely day for croquet, and um, the challenge is, is accepted. Sir George still has a load of trouble getting out. Mm. But, uh, and in fact, he doesn't make it on the first attempt. No, because eventually yeah. they have to make him angry. Yes, yes. and that's, sort of, um, that's a lovely shot, because they like to do their high shots. So yes. they anybody yeah. from the Minstrel's Gallery down onto the main room, and they're just barracking him, aren't they? Well, at mm. first they're saying how sort of weak and weak-willed yeah. he is. And going, I know I am. And he agrees. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But eventually he gets angry thinking about his sister again mm-hmm. and um, finds himself outside on what is quite a windy afternoon. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it's vaguely sunny, but yeah, yeah. his hair's going, all our ribbons and things are going on her cap. Yeah, so they've got a toss for it and she, she goes heads or tails. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, she cheats. And she, she cheats. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. She's got a, is it a silver coin? Yeah, it's yeah. like a Victorian silver Victorian penny or head. something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Then you get this this wonderfully daft um, sort of montage sequence of them playing croquet. And you yes. do, all you really hear is because you've just got the shots. So I suppose you can't really keep shooting the ball. So you yeah. just get the shots of the ha- actors and, the and the click as it yeah. hits the ball. It's a nice jaunty music. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you said this is um, um, Sir George sort of hamming it up a bit. Yes, he's very hammy, and his his <laughs> expressions are very hammy. It's like ooh, ham please. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, sort of Matt explains yeah, to them. what the situation is that she's got to win because mm-hmm. um, if she stays she'll make everybody miserable yeah. uh, Matt goes outside to tell Sir George and I noticed especially in these shots you can tell just how much older Matt is mm-hmm. um, than, than he was at the start of the series a, a couple of years ago that's the thing. Nobody else has changed, but no. because Matt is, is so much younger, yeah. two years makes makes quite a bit of difference. Mm-hmm. But he explains to Sir George, he's got to lose. So suddenly, Alexander is suspiciously wi- winning. Would Would you have been suspicious if he was here? Yes, I yeah. would, because uh, you'd be suspicious automatically of your brother anyway, wouldn't yeah. you? I think she just thinks that she's that. Much Good. better, and, yeah, and it's you know that old self-informed. Yeah, because yeah. she says to him, I'm "Who's who's the better player now? Yeah, yeah. who's the daddy now?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. and then she just says farewell and and yeah. disappears. Mm-hmm. And a nice, nice effect again. Um, but yeah, um, he's free at last. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and so uh, they have a visitor at that point, don't they? And then uh, Willoughby Goddard comes in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Has a look round the house. And they're all behaving themselves, aren't yeah. they? They're not going to frighten them off. No, because Sir George has made an oath that he won't do anything else now. Yeah. 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 He comes in, has a look and says, no. 
Mm. It's a very nice house, but basically there's no atmosphere, is there? No, I wanted a haunted house. I write ghost stories. Yeah, you wanted something spooky. This is a warm and cheerful place and there's nothing here for me. (laughs) So I I just love the way all the ghosts try and scare him, even though Mm. he can't see them. And you get some wonderful... Sort of real Scooby Doo <laughs> stuff, don't you? Mm-hmm. And Sheila Stiefel, event it was really good because uh, she goes, Ooh, oh, well, there's no point. <laughs> <laughs> no point, Gushin. It was a great little wrap up, but mm-hmm. I think that is a great episode for yes. for yeah. Freddie Jones. Well, a great pair it? of episodes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Great story, yeah. Yes. But did you just want to very briefly mention a few other things? You know, he, mm-hmm. he's in because, of course, he's Die the Tramp in. Children, Children of the Stones. Of the That's Stones. the first experience I ever had of Freddy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember him as Die the Tramp. That's the first time I ever saw him, or in my memory that I could ever place of seeing him. And I like Die the Tramp. He's quite a character, yeah. isn't he? Mm. He does play quite whimsical characters, he's, he's doesn't he? He's got the sort of face, because he's not really conventionally good-looking. Mm. So he has to do the character parts. Yeah. And his son, who um, is an actor... And I forgot his name. He does the kind of character parts, yeah, um, as well. Uh, so you always know you're going to get a good character because he's in an episode of Vandervolk, isn't oh, he? Oh, that's right. And yes. he's he's um, pretending to, he's be, pretending a blind to be a blind vicar. vicar. Yes. Yeah, and and then there's a sort of fight with another policeman, and it's yeah, he's just he's a swindler, isn't he? Yeah. Did you mean Toby Jones? Toby Jones. That's yeah. it. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yes, I couldn't remember his name. But yeah, I mean, he, again, he, he's just one of those sort of long line of really great character actors from I the seventies. That yeah. you know, no matter what he's in, he's really good. Mm. And you you said so, Warren, when you were watching it about the way he stands or something. Yeah. That he sort he, of leans back. He has a certain um, posture he takes, and it appears in everything that he does. Is either his the way he stands or he arches back or the way he turns yeah that is just a, and he carries this uh freddyism with him if you like a freddyism Freddyism. Like even even in the elephant man he yeah. does it mm-hmm. yeah. um, and he's not a very nice character in the elephant he's man he's not a very nice character at all no, in he's fact, the one that's exploiting john merrick he yeah. he changed some of it didn't he because he was saying the script was too um um too lovey-dovey and mm-hmm. he made it more his part his character more darker all right. Hello. Oh, here comes Rose. Hello, Rose. Hello, Rose. Rose is coming to join in just yeah, at the end. He is yeah. such a character actor, the likes of which we are losing. We are losing hand over fist at the moment because, yeah. unfortunately, as this generation gets older, it's. Yeah. But as I said, his son yeah, is very much in the same mould. He plays character parts, mm. and I'm kind of hoping he'll be in the new Worlds of Comedy because he's done stuff with Mackenzie Crook before. Yeah, so we shall see. But there you are, those Freddie Jones. Yes, yes. yes. You, you know, if you want to see something with him at um, full good acting, yeah. go to Motley but Hall. Go to Motley yes. Hall. Available he's on always DVD. Good. He's head, yeah. head and shoulders, tour de force, in that, and it re- I think it really stands up to rewatching yes, as absolutely. well. Yeah. It's a while since we've seen them. Yeah. And those two episodes just flew by for yeah, me. And yeah, and you've got such a great cast in it as well, because yeah. as you said, you've got Sheila Stiefel, you've got Arthur English, oh, yeah. you've got Nicholas Le Provost. I don't know if that's how you say it, it's probably not. Um, and loads of guest, great guest stars. Yeah, and, you, and you made the comparison with Ghosts, didn't yes, you? Yes, it's very much, Ghosts is very much the 21st century version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, when you say 21st century, yeah. <laughs> you're feeling old. feel old when you hear that. Yeah. Oh, well, but yet so. I've just watched a programme that... I can remember quite clearly yeah. and had quite an influence on me. And it's just, you get immersed, don't you? Yeah. And with Freddie, that's the thing. You get immersed with his performance. Yeah. 
Okay, and there you are. There's the nice. ghost of Motley Hall. Yes. And Freddie Jones. And Freddie Jones. Thank yes. you, then. We salute you. Bye-bye. Yeah, Bye-bye. Recognise them? It's the two Kellys, Matthew and Henry. In this week's TV Times, Henry talks about the daughter who's the apple of his eye. See them together in TV Times' Star Family Challenge. Matthew joins the Super Six in the magical city of Kathmandu for the adventure of a lifetime. Henry Cooper gets the job of a lifetime. He's teaching Miss UK to play golf. And there's all your summer programs for the week ahead on ITV and Channel 4, only in TV Times. That was episode 38 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings, Martin Holmes, Paul Chandler, Nick Goodman and Joe Bunsell. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The scripts for The Ghosts of Motley Hall, Skeleton in the Cupboard, were by Richard Carpenter. And the producer was Quentin Lawrence. Then uh, Willoughby Goddard turns up. Oh, yes. yes. Um, bo- boss of Mr. Reader. Yeah, before that, though, you get all the stuff with, because Matt's going to go outside. Oh, is he... that after that? That's after that, isn't it? Right, carry on. So Willoughby Goddard comes in. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm doing it as an edit. We're going to have to start again now. Oh. Yeah. So then Willoughby Goddard comes in. He does, yeah. X, X. <laughs> These are the outtakes now. <laughs> Willoughby Goddard comes in. Exit stage right. The rest of the cast. Don't try, Mr. Trowbridge. You've got a script. He's gone. I've got him. It's been a while. Thank you very much. I'm appearing for all bar mitzvahs. Carry on, Lisa. Okay. <laughs> Willoughby Goddard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, honestly. Read So cut back to Peter Sellers. <laughs> Peter Sellers? <laughs> mm. So we then cut back to Peter Sellers. 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 Do it again. Minky. So we then cut back to Peter Sellers' office. Mm-hmm. And what do we go <laughs> For heaven's sake, it's going to take longer than 20 minutes. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Why don't you stop and start? Stop starting, stop starting. <laughs> get all the giggles Come on, Vic. Then. Come on, Vic. Stop starting.